So today, I'm approving an executive order to begin the hard work of restoring our refugee admissions program to help meet the unprecedented global need. This executive order will position us to be able to raise the refugee admissions back up to 125,000 persons for the first full fiscal year of the Biden-Harris administration. That was President Biden in early February announcing a dramatic expansion in the number of refugees his administration will admit into the United States this fiscal year. 125,000 up from a cap of just 15,000 that had been imposed by his predecessor, Donald Trump. It was, it seemed then, a clear example of his commitment to ending the harsh anti-immigrant policies that had been so aggressively pushed by Trump's guru on such matters, Stephen Miller. But when it came time for Biden to actually implement his new policy, he balked, overruling impassioned pleas by his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and other national security aides. Biden, some of his aides say, was worried about the influx of young, unaccompanied minors pouring into the country along the southern border at record numbers, and the ability of the government to absorb thousands of refugees from elsewhere around the world fleeing persecution, war, or oppression at home. We'll talk to Mark Hetfield of Hyas, a refugee advocate who was stunned by the president's reversal and worried about what it portends. And we'll also talk to Yahoo News contributor Jonna Winter about some eye-popping new reporting about a secret unit within the U.S. Postal Service that is tracking Americans' social media posts on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isgoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So uh, as we approach Biden's first 100 days in office next week, we haven't seen a lot of stories about dissension within the administration until now. Uh, and it's on this issue. It was really striking to me to see the stories about how uh, Secretary of State Blinken had personally pleaded with Biden to carry through with his promise to jack up that number to 125,000 only to be overruled. And, you know, we'd all like to be the flies on the wall uh, at one of these meetings. But, you know, clearly there was political pushback coming that caused Biden to balk at what he had promised he was going to do. Yeah. I mean, there's always political pushback, and it's not surprising when administrations make uh, decisions rooted at least partly in in politics. But this one really surprised me um, because it was sort of an article of faith uh, that they were going to lift the cap. And on, on an issue, uh, immigration, refugees, uh, where they had demonized rightfully Donald Trump for his policies rooted in nativism <laughs> and really put together by Stephen Miller, it was it was really surprising. And, and, and I will and, say and Blink, Blinken had a personal interest. In I was this, just going right? to say this was very personal uh, for Tony Blinken. R- right after he was nominated, um, he put out a, um, a video talking about um, how honored he was to be nominated to be secretary of state. And, and, and what he really emphasized was this idea that um, the United States was the last best hope on earth. And he talked about his parents and grandparents who were immigrants, refugees, his stepfather, who really loomed large in his life and raised him, Sam Pizar, a man that I knew in Paris, a a, uh, Holocaust survivor, instilled in Tony Blinken uh, you know, this idea that the United States was a beacon uh, for the world and a safe haven uh, for those fleeing oppression. Uh, Sam Pizar was a refugee himself. Um, so it must have been very difficult. The, the White House officials said that this did not turn into a fight uh, between uh, Blinken and Biden. And they, of course, are very close, not just professionally, but very close uh, personally as well. And that would not be Tony Blinken's style to get into a fight with his boss. But I think it must have really stung for Tony. And this is not only a fight within the Biden administration, but this might have been 
the first major piece of blowback that Biden has gotten from the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, kind of uh, bitterly disappointed with his decision. And just to, to kind of put this all in context, you know, about four or five years ago, the United States was regularly admitting 65,000 to 70,000 or so refugees into the United States every year. That's into a country that's got more than 350 million people who live in it. Uh, Trump dropped that number to 15,000, the lowest it's been in American history. And so, you know, Biden's refusal to raise that number has really occasioned a lot of blowback from the liberal Democratic wing. Yeah. And we'll see. They, they, you know, Jen Psaki has since said that May 15th, they'll announce a new number. We'll see where they go. But you know what this reminds me of? Um, Clyburn, you'll remember this. Uh, back in the first year of the Obama administration, Eric Holder, the attorney general, started speaking out about the need to um, reinstate the assault weapons ban, which had lapsed under President George W. Bush. And which Obama had campaigned on and said he would do. Right, exactly. And Holder got shut down, if you remember, I wrote a story about this for Newsweek by Rahm Emanuel because he was worried about the politics, that it was going to interfere with the uh, White House's ability to get health care through. I wrote about this in my in my book, and the quote I recall from it was Rahm telling, uh, you know, I forget who, but one of his aides to tell Holder to tell the Justice Department, tell Holder to shut the fuck up on guns. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and look, we don't know um, who delivered uh, that message to Tony Blinken here, uh, whether it was Biden himself or we don't know who was pushing Biden uh, in this direction. Uh, I have my uh, thoughts about who it might be. Uh, Mike Donnell and the pollster, perhaps looking at the polling numbers about what's going on at the southern border and uh, uh, perhaps one of the other uh, political aides as well, but this is clearly a uh, a problem for the for the White House. My guess is they're probably going to try to split the difference, do something uh, by that May fifteenth that gets the number up, but not as high as Biden had committed to. What do you think? There, I mean, maybe I'll ask pose this question to Victoria, the uh, Politico among us. What do you think they are so worried about? Clearly, immigration is a hot button issue, you know, and I can see that this would really, you know, animate the Trump base. But where are they going to go? Are they worried about uh, this having a big impact on suburban voters and that um, or maybe they're worried about uh, midterm elections, that immigration could become a big issue? It just seems um, they're so spooked on immigration. And I, I, I just I don't know whether it's justified. Maybe it is. Well, the thing about it is it's not just immigration. It's also where the refugees are going to be coming from. Right. And today, refugees, by and large, the, the the largest bulk of refugees throughout the world are coming from Muslim countries. And so this is not just a question of, you know, kind of immigrants at the southern border who are Latino, but it's also a question of all of a sudden another, let's say, 40,000 Syrian refugees coming into the United States. And as you may recall, you know, uh, five or six years ago, that the uh, willingness of American communities to accept new Muslim immigrants into their towns and cities really plummeted, even amongst, as you say, Danny, you know, kind of suburban, moderate to independent voters have such a, a, a kind of a, almost a knee jerk fear or concern about those immigrants or about those refugees. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of uh, going back again to the Obama administration when when Democrats in Congress completely freaked out and revolted when the Obama administration uh, trying to to shut down Guantanamo. We're, uh, we're going to bring like four Chinese Uyghurs from Guantanamo uh, to the United States. And there was this like huge revolt, you know, not in my backyard, you know, bringing terrorists to America. I mean, yeah. Or, or when they when when they even tried to conduct one trial in New York. Yeah, right. Uh, you exactly. know, it was just like even the most liberal New Yorkers were adamantly opposed to the idea of one defendant 
from Guantanamo being brought up to New York City to be uh, to be prosecuted. So instead of Trump's Muslim ban, we have Biden's Muslim restriction, I guess. Um, but look, uh, we've got another really cool story to talk about as well uh, on this uh, episode, and that is uh, the reporting by Yahoo News contributor uh, Donna Winter about this uh, creepy secret unit within the uh, U.S. Postal Service that's uh, uh, monitoring uh, social media posts of Americans uh, raising all kinds of uh, civil liberties issues. The idea that government investigators are monitoring what uh, you and I might post on uh, Facebook or Twitter or other social media is something worth talking about. I can only imagine if this story had come out you know, eight or nine years ago when everybody was all in uproar over the Snowden revelations, uh, this would have added to the mix. So fun fact, postal inspectors, uh, the, mm-hmm. the nation's oldest federal law enforcement agency. Uh, Is that true? Pre- really? Yeah. <laughs> OK. Far predates the FBI. Not yep. a lot of them, only about 2000 of them, maybe even a little bit less than 2000 of them. Most criminal defense attorneys or putative criminal defendants, when they learned the postal inspectors are after them, get worried. So the finding out that the that the Postal Inspection Service has this, you know, kind of social media monitoring service that no one knew about really, uh, I think, unnerved a fair number of people. Um, uh, for good reasons. And so stick around. Uh, a lot to talk about. One more point we should make. Uh, next week is Biden's uh, first 100 days. Uh, I think on Wednesday, he's uh, giving a speech to a joint session of Congress. So we will be back with you on Thursday with a uh, dissection of it. So right now, let's get to the show. We now have with us Mark Hetfield, the president of HIAS, the uh, American Jewish Community's Global Refugee Agency. Mark, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. So you have been and your organization have been very involved in the refugee issue, trying to increase the number of refugees uh, the United States takes in. How disappointed are you that the Biden administration has not fulfilled what the president originally said back in February, that he was going to up the cap uh, to 125,000? And what's your explanation for why? Well, you know, I think the jury is still out on how disappointed we are because we're still waiting for the president to declare his the number for this fiscal year and also the number for the next fiscal year. So we don't know yet, the jury's out. But in terms of what happened, uh, it was it was bizarre. Uh, the, the, the Biden administration came into office more energized to lead the world on refugee protection than any other administration in history. And, and that is no exaggeration. And they really showed this in the first three weeks in office. Within two weeks of being in office, he issued a comprehensive executive order outlining in great detail everything he was going to do to restore America's leadership in refugee protection. And then on February 12th, he sent not one, not two, but three cabinet-level officials to Congress to make the case for increased refugee resettlement to this country. He sent the acting secretary of health and human services and the secretary of state and the secretary of Homeland Security to Congress to consult on that on February 12th. And they said this was a refugee emergency and required an emergency response. They presented a very thoughtful 15-page document outlining the administration's strategy. And then nothing. I mean, total radio silence after February 12th. And in the meantime, the State Department was booking approved and vetted refugees on planes. These are refugees who were excluded from the program by the Trump administration, even though they had qualified for refugee status and met all the other requirements. And Biden promised to undo the restrictions that prevented them from coming here. So taking him at his word and taking uh, him at his word that this was an emergency, they booked those refugees on flights over the course of the month of March, 715 refugees. 
And they then had to unbook them. After telling them they were all coming to the U.S., after years of waiting and years of being in process, they had to then unbook them. And there was no explanation for this. Uh, the, the White House was repeatedly asked. Uh, we counted between February 2nd and April 12th. Jen Psaki was asked this question six times. When is the president going to fulfill his promise of implementing his own refugee policy and signing this new presidential determination for refugees? Six times. And six times she said, I don't know. And when she was pressed on what the reason was for the delay, she would basically say, well, I don't know, but it has nothing to do with the situation at the border. Okay. Well, let's let's stop there for a second because I mean, as far as I can tell, the the only thing that really the only relevant thing that happened between the time that they were consistently uh you know making the promises, then taking steps to actually operationalize it before they went silent and then ultimately reverse their position. The only thing that really happened was there was this problem at the southern border, this enormous surge of migrants and uh, unaccompanied children, and a huge amount of uh, political blowback. So is there any any reason to believe that it is that it, it was unrelated to that? Is there any evidence that has emerged uh, that the administration has provided to suggest it was unrelated to that? Well, the, the bottom line is we can fast forward to this past Saturday when on the golf course, President Biden made it quite clear what the reason was, which was exactly that, that it was the situation at the border. He said that the Office of Refugee Resettlement uh, is involved both in finding shelter for unaccompanied children at the border, as well as in refugee resettlement. And they couldn't do two things at once. So they prioritized uh, the border situation. Now, that was infuriating on a number of levels. I mean, one, we're the greatest country in the world. You would think we could do two things at once. You would think we could do both asylum and refugee resettlement. Other countries certainly do it. And also the Office of Refugee Resettlement really relies on different staff, different programs to meet those two needs. Different budgets, too, right? Isn't it largely the State Department budget? Well, it's largely the State Department budget. I mean, it is true that ORR does have a role in refugee resettlement and that they do have to spend money on refugee resettlement. But that was that is not the stovepipe here. Um, And in fact, because so few refugees are coming in, even if the president were to sign this, it wouldn't dramatically increase that. Everything is already in place to handle that. It was it was a political resource issue, not a true resource issue. I want to jump in and throw some numbers at this. So before the Trump administration, the average number of refugees that the United States admitted somewhere, you know, kind of it would hover between 80,000 to maybe 60,000 people a year. Trump dropped it to about 15,000, you know, kind of uh, uh, refugees admitted into the United States a year. So we're maybe talking about a difference if Biden went up to the previous level of maybe an additional 45,000 people being admitted into the United 45 to 50,000 people being admitted into the United States as refugees next year. Who's afraid of 50,000 refugees? Right. That's that's what we want to know. Um, I think it, it's just all about the optics. It was all about the political optics for the Biden administration. But luckily for us, they clearly did a political miscalculation. They found out that, in fact, there is a lot of support out there for the Biden administration keeping its promise of admitting more refugees. So they had a a fear that was not based, in fact, about the political optics of letting in refugees at a time of the situation at the border. And frankly, it was a lost opportunity because while President Biden said, we're not going to resettle more refugees because of the situation at the border, what he should have said is, we are going to resettle more refugees because of the situation at the border. Because the reason you have people who are putting their lives in the hands of greedy coyotes uh, and risking their lives to cross the desert and uh, without authorization in the United States is because there's no legal pathway here for people who are fleeing for safety, right? There is no legal pathway except for the refugee resettlement program. And to shut that down and to keep the Trump restrictions in place at a time when people who are desperate are crossing the border on their own because there's no safe and legal pathway to get here, you know, that that's just unacceptable. Um, so the situation at the border should have led to a more vigorous refugee resettlement program, 
uh, not one that has barricades. Mark, you've been talking to people in the administration about this. Uh, you say basically it's political optics that put the brakes on the president doing what he was committed to doing. What's your understanding about who within the White House, who within the administration was pushing the president not to do what he had committed to doing? You'll have to ask the president that question. Um, but, but this was certainly an Oval Office problem. This was not something that fell between the cracks. This wasn't sitting on some bureaucrat's desk. The decision uh, not to act was clearly made at the very highest levels. Uh, how are we defining the Oval Office, just the person who sits behind the Resolute desk? Or is it a little more metaphorical that we're talking about the president and his closest political advisors who are looking at the polling numbers after the, uh, you know, kind of controversy surrounding um, the, uh, the the border. Right. We're, we're talking about, I think, the the Oval Office and the offices immediately around it, <laughs> not the old executive <laughs> office building. So about a 75-foot radius from the Resolute Desk? Or... Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, there, there was a, uh, in one of the accounts I read, there was a uh, briefing for refugee advocates with the deputy National Security Advisor John Finer, I think Friday evening. Did you uh, attend that briefing, or, or at least virtually? Can you tell us about it if you did? Right. Well, it was off the record, but of course, I think much of it has been leaked uh, since then, not by yours truly. <laughs> but but there was frankly nothing said at that at that briefing that was not already said in the news, and it was a very it was not an interactive briefing. Right. We had to submit questions in advance. And uh, there was there was no interaction between Finer and, and ourselves other than other than that. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was more them talking uh, to us rather than with us. They didn't want to hear what you had to say. <laughs> um, now um, you mentioned, Mark, that the administration itself uh, it described this the, the refugee issue as an emergency. It, right. Back in February, explain what that emergency is. Where these refugees who were boarding planes to come to the United States were coming from, why they were coming here. Give us a sense of the uh, of the depth of the issue you're talking about. Sure, and and it is an emergency. I mean, that was not an exaggeration on on their part. It's not a new emergency. Uh, this is an emergency that has been building and building. Uh, for the last 10 years, frankly, since the onset of the, of the Syrian conflict, I would say, is, is when I would, uh, I would date it to. Um, but we have 79.5 million displaced persons in the world. Over a third of those are refugees, meaning they're outside their country of, uh, of origin. They had to flee over an international border. And we have over a million refugees who are in need of refugee resettlement because they have no hope of integration in their country of first asylum and no hope of returning home in the foreseeable future. Uh, so it, it is an emergency, and it's an emergency that the world has been ignoring at its peril. And you saw what happened the last time in 2015 when there was very little being done for the Syrian refugee emergency. Uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees took their lives into their own hands and crossed the Mediterranean. We have very vivid recollections as to what happened there because there was no safe and legal pathway to come. And now we have an emergency in our own hemisphere with Venezuela being the second largest displacement crisis on the planet. We have Central Americans who are fleeing violence, fleeing for their lives, coming over uh, through Mexico and trying to get into our country. Um, so it, it is a global emergency and it requires a real leadership. I, I would just like to break in on this point because I had some personal experience with this a few years ago. I was in Syria uh, to interview Bashar al-Assad and then came back through the Bekaa Valley and stopped off at uh, one of the refugee camps uh, where Syrian refugees were staying. And I think that, and, and you know, it was really heartbreaking to see the conditions that these people were living under. And at the time, I think the number was something like three million Syrian refugees from that civil war had fled Syria and were living in Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan. And what struck me is that's more than three times 
the number of Palestinian refugees from the Arab-Israeli conflict in 1948, which the world is still living with, right? right? And look at all the problems we've had ever since as a result. So, you know, I, I take your point that this is a real serious problem that could be decades we're going to be dealing with. Right. Let me ask, you know, some people say, look, why aren't other countries taking in more refugees? Why does the United States have to, you know, kind of take up all of this uh, issue? What's your what's your answer to people about why it's important for the United States to to do something or to raise these numbers? Well, it goes to what Michael just said, right, which there's this misperception that, oh, the United States does so much more than every other country to take in refugees. It's just not true, right? And when you look at the burden that the poorest countries in the world have, because just by accident of geography, that's the only place that refugees can flee to. And you look at countries like Lebanon, like Jordan, like Turkey, they've taken in millions and millions of refugees for other countries that are much, much smaller than ours. So refugee resettlement is all about just demonstrating that we're going to share that burden, uh, that responsibility with host countries. And if you demonstrate true leadership by really taking in a significant number of refugees, you send an important message that you have skin in the game, you have credibility to work with those countries to find longer term solutions for people who have fled there. And over time, you can make a real impact. So, for example, in, in 1980, the Carter administration uh, took in 207,112 refugees. And that does not even count the Marielle boat lift of, of asylum seekers, right? So 207,112 resettled refugees. We were able to absorb that without a problem uh, through our refugee resettlement uh, system, which was just created that year, actually. And when you're resettling that number of refugees, over time, you can have a real impact. The problem is we haven't been doing that. And we've been resettling so few refugees that it's it's really important to the refugees we resettle, but it's not going to have any noticeable impact on any of these really grave refugee situations. Give us a sense of what resettling uh, refugees in this country really entails. We're a country of, I don't know, I think about 330 million people, richest country um, in, in the world. What is it that you have to do to actually resettle refugees? Just at its simplest level, I mean, you have to vet them for security. You have to obviously find them places to live. How complicated is that? Uh, what's our history of, of doing that? Just give us a little bit of a primer on that so that people understand what, what this involves. Yeah, I'm laughing because that is a, a very big question. I want to try to be succinct in how I answer it. But, you know, first of all, I'll say that there, there's two ways that the United States can protect people. There's giving asylum to people who are either at our borders or inside of our country who are afraid to go home. And, and people who are applying for asylum have a right to asylum, right? So if they have a fear of persecution, you cannot send them back under international law or under U.S. law. The refugee program is much more controlled and discretionary. So the U.S. government knows that there are many more refugees in the world than they can possibly take in. So they have to make a decision. What refugees do we invite to apply for resettlement? So you can't even apply for refugee resettlement outside the United States unless you're basically invited. Uh, by the United States to do so, or identified by the UN Refugee Agency as needing resettlement and then referred to the United States. So first of all, there's getting that invitation, falling into one of these categories that just makes you eligible for consideration. Then there's the actual preparation of the application, and, and you are interviewed by a Homeland Security officer who makes sure, A, that you meet the refugee definition, that you are, in fact, fearing, you have a fear of persecution based on one of the five grounds race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or a social group, and B, that you don't present a security threat to the United States. And, and that part of the process has really kind of consumed the entire process because they run it through not just Homeland Security vetting processes, but also multiple other intelligence and security agencies look at every single refugee application before that application can be approved. So this, this process, uh, which has just been built upon uh, with new layer after new layer since September 11th to make the program totally secure, takes not just months, but years for refugees to go through. So unfortunately, the program has become something that is a, I liken it to a, a lifeboat that moves at a glacial pace. 
so you are in your situation for quite some time while you're trying to get through this obstacle course uh, and get to the United States through a settlement. But it is a very kind of methodical and disciplined program. The infuriating thing for me is that it's kind of solving a problem that didn't exist. I mean, more than 3 million refugees have come to the United States uh, since 1980, since this process was established by the Refugee Act, and not a single one has ever committed a lethal act of terror on U.S. soil. And yet the entire program, it has become about making sure that we don't allow in any bad actors, even though that had never been a problem, because it is a very invasive process, right? You have to go through so many interviews and so much scrutiny, even without all these security checks, that it, it does not present a, a really serious security risk. And again, you just have to look at our track record and that speaks for itself. And that's just what happens on the other side of the pond. Then when the refugee actually gets here, it, it, the program is implemented through nine private resettlement agencies, nine charities like HIAS, plus eight other agencies representing six faith groups and a number of non-sectarian organizations. And it's up to us to pick them up at the airport, get them a place to live for their initial uh, few months in the United States, get their kids in school, uh, get them employed as quickly as possible. And then after five years, they can apply for citizenship. It really is kind of a tough love, get to work program. Very different than the approach that Europeans take or even the Canadians take to refugee resettlement. For us, the entire emphasis is and always has been on early employment, getting refugees to get employed as quickly as possible to get them on the path to self-sufficiency. There's very little assistance. They get some assistance during that initial period, but very, very little, and only for their first few months in the United States. And they even have to pay back the cost of their, of their flights to the United States, right? So they, yes, the United States government pays for those flights, but it's then up to us, the, the uh, resettlement agencies, to collect from those refugees the loans that were used to pay for those flights and then use those to pay for flights of future refugees. Mark, uh, do you watch Tucker Carlson at night? Uh, I made the mistake of being on Tucker Carlson once. <laughs> really? <Okay. laughs> Please don't uh, Google that. Please don't Google it. Yes. Um, I, I take it you haven't been asked back. I, look, look, the reason I ask is he has given voice to the replacement theory that uh, immigrants are pouring into this country and replacing us and and diluting or polluting the American character. He's giving voice to uh, the worldview of Stephen Miller during the Trump White House. And um, clearly, that's a part of the political equation on dealing with this issue. You know, what's your reaction to what he's been saying lately which a lot of us hear and find incredibly vile, and how to combat it. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously beyond offensive. I mean, I, as you know, I am the president of the American Jewish Communities Refugee Agency, and the exact same arguments that are being used to keep refugees out today, those replacement theory arguments, they're not new. I mean, they were also used in the 1920s and 30s successfully. That was the basis of the 1924 immigration law that shut down mass immigration from Southern Europe and from Eastern Europe. Exactly. I mean, that was a Jewish and Catholic ban uh, of, it, of its day. And, and, it was, and they weren't even subtle about it. I mean, it, it was all about replacement theory. And, um, and, and that, that, that caused many family members of American Jews to be trapped inside of a genocide. Right. It, the, the, we we uh, we did not respond to the Jewish refugee crisis. We turned back the, the St. Louis. Um, and it was all because of these arguments about not changing our national character. And, and this dates back not just to the 1920s, but to the John Adams administration and the Alien and Sedition Act. So, you know, we like we represented highest one American tradition of welcoming refugees and welcoming the stranger. And that's very much part of our country's history. And Tucker, to be fair, represents another tradition of, of arguing uh, to keep people out because we don't want to change our national character. And that while while we've while our um, ancestors came from the good refugees, now the bad ones are coming in. And that's an argument that has been made in this country since the 18th century. It was fallacious then, and it's fallacious now. Mark, are you, are you worried that that the kind of the Tucker Carlson strand is is 
dominating now? In other words, you know, one could look at at the decision that was made to not raise the refugee numbers to be as, as a short term thing that in a few weeks or months that the Biden administration will reverse course and increase the numbers or is the kind of the this, the resurgence of the Tucker Carlson strain so strong that you you kind of worry that that that, you know, that the administration will never raise the numbers again? Yeah, that's a really good question, Victoria. So. I've been doing this work for a long time. My wife asked me to not tell people how long, but it's been, I've been doing this for 32, 33 years now. And my biggest problem used to be apathy, right? Um, That's not a problem I have anymore. That's not even on my top 10 list. Uh, Right now we have more support for refugees than ever before, like more excitement, more enthusiasm about welcoming them more recognition that this is uh, an American tradition and and it's just an important part of our national character. But we also have um, a higher level of anti-refugee hatred, of of otherization uh, being promoted by the Tucker Carlson's and frankly, the Donald Trump's and the Stephen Miller's of the world. And so these two uh, worldviews are in conflict with one another, but the, the, the latter really presents a threat to us. And, and I would say we really recognize the gravity of the threat in 2015, when after there, there was the attack in Paris on November 13th, 2015, um, the response in this country was in and by itself tragic. And that was you had 31 governors actually come out, and I never thought I would see anything like this in my lifetime, actually come out and say, we are going to ban Syrian Muslim refugees from our states. So 31 governors, 30 of them Republicans, said that they're going to actually ban people because of where they were born or what their religion is. And, um, and then to compound that, you had all of the, what was it at that time, 14 Republican presidential candidates saying, the same thing, backing up the governor saying, no, we shouldn't allow in any Syrian Muslim refugees. Never mind that there were no Syrian Muslim refugees who had anything to do with that attack in Paris. It was all radicalized Europeans. Even Republicans like Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush, who had excellent track records on immigration refugee issues, became xenophobic in their rhetoric, echoing those 31 governors. And that's when we realized that we have a real serious national problem on our hands. So there are a couple of things that you might that maybe would be encouraging to you. One is a former Republican president, George W. Bush, um, has been speaking out pretty passionately on on these issues. Who knows how much impact he'll have on his on his own party? But also, there was uh, quite a strong backlash against the administration's reversal from Democrats in Congress, like Dick. Durbin, Say It Ain't So Joe, and others who, who who called it appalling. It was clear that the administration heard that because then they came out and said, well, we were misunderstood and sorry for the confusion. What do they need to do? What do you think they will do now? And what will be uh, satisfactory to you? It, I think Jen Psaki said, don't expect the cap to be raised to 62,000, which is what they promised. Setting the expectation will be less than that. If it ends up being 40,000 or 45,000 or some number like that, what will your response be? Yeah. So I guess there's the, there's 2021, there's 2022, right? And we are still in, in a pandemic. What, what really annoys us is that instead of just setting the damn ceiling, they're doing a lot of navel gazing and, uh, and, and agonizing about what the ceiling should be, right? It's a ceiling. It's not, it's not a, a mandatory goal that you have to meet. It's just a ceiling. It means the president can't bring in more refugees than that. So just set the number. I don't care if it's 62,500. I don't care if it's 125,000. I don't care if it's 50,000. It should be higher than the number set by Trump. And we'll understand that it's aspirational because Trump did totally destroy um, the refugee resettlement process. He did destroy the infrastructure and the pandemic is complicating things for sure. So we understand that. But just set the number and then start to rebuild the program so that in 2022, the president can actually fulfill his promise of 125000 And that is doable, but only if we get to work and stop agonizing over the stupid ceiling. All that said, um, there is an issue at the southern border 
we do have record numbers of unaccompanied minors uh, you know, coming into the country. I think, what, 20,000 are now in custody uh, in various federal facilities. That's a record number. And, and most of them probably would not qualify as refugees under current law. So when you look at the southern border and the crisis that the president now admits, even though Jen Psaki won't use the word, um, what ideas do you have? What's your uh, conception of what the administration should be doing? That that was another frustrating thing with the president putting off the refugee resettlement uh, decision because that's low-hanging fruit. That's a relatively easy issue because the program is so controlled. Um, The southern border is a challenge, right? It's a lose-lose proposition. There is no easy way for the president to to resolve that crisis or non-crisis, whatever you want to call it. But that being said, there are a few things that need to be done and we need to see some progress on. And one is creating a safe and legal pathway for people to get here, especially unaccompanied children who have relatives here in the United States. Um, Obama started to do that through the Central American Minors Program. And just as that was was picking up steam, which was the only safe and legal route for Central American refugees to get here, just as he was that was starting to pick up steam, the Trump administration shut it down, giving Central Americans no alternatives if they needed to flee here for safety or to reunite with family other than by rushing the border. So that's a problem. You need to step up and stop under-resourcing immigration uh, courts and immigration adjudications, right? One of the problems is that they, the United States government has poured so much money into Customs and Border Protection and into Immigration and Customs Enforcement and to CBP and ICE and Border Patrol, but has totally starved the actual adjudicators, right? So it's created this huge backlog of over a million cases in the immigration courts. And when you have a backlog, that backlog just feeds itself because people know that if they come here, um, if they have a claim to asylum, it's gonna take years to decide that claim. But if they don't have a claim to asylum, they can still claim asylum because it's gonna take years to hear that claim, right? And right now, highest is clients who are getting court dates that are four years in the future, literally four years in the future. So we have to get that under control and have an immigration system where if somebody comes to our border, you can make a quick determination. When I say quick, I mean, you know, weeks instead of years about whether or not that person needs to be admitted to the U.S. or not. But we don't have that. So anybody who essentially makes it into the United States uh, has years of waiting uh, ahead of them because of our totally starved immigration system. It's also an argument for legalization, right? Because with with over 11 million undocumented people in this country, the immigration courts are totally overwhelmed. And you're just not going to be able to get ahead of this problem until you deal with the 11 million uh, who are part of the issue backlogging the immigration courts. So you just need a comprehensive plan and real investment. Well, good luck with the politics of that. Um, we've seen uh, how that's uh, played out in years past. But Mark, I really want to thank you for joining us. It's a really important issue and um, uh, we'll want to stay in touch uh, as this unfolds. It's fine. Thank you. All right. We now have with us Jana Winter, a Yahoo News contributor and the reporter who broke this really uh, striking story this week that's getting a lot of attention. The Postal Service is running a covert operations program that monitors Americans' social media posts. Jana, welcome to Skullduggery. Hello. Thanks for having me. So uh, quite a scoop you came up with. Tell us about it. And in particular, this unit, this surveillance unit that I'm sure none of our listeners have ever heard of inside the U.S. Postal Service called the Internet Covert Operations Program. What is that? Um, (laughs) Right. The post office has a secret well, not anymore, but a secret program where they have these analysts that just police the internet looking for really anything on social media and sending it through the Department of Homeland Security's vast network of sharing networks to police around the country. So, I mean, there's been a lot of focus after the January 6th attack on the Capitol 
on how law enforcement is going to collect and investigate what could be threats on social media, but it is also First Amendment protected speech up to the point of becoming, you know, violent. So this was a great surprise to the people who literally study this every single day. And no one seemed to know that this existed. And we obtained a bulletin that just outlined the work of this secret program. And then I called the post office or their law enforcement arm, which is the um, Postal Inspection Service. And they said, oh, yes, we do have a covert operations program. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> um, which, is, it which is a little, it's a little unexpected. <laughs> yeah. Blowing their cover instantly. Um, two quick questions for you, Jana. Uh, first of all, did they just start this after the January 6th insurrection or has it been going on longer? And secondly, and this is, I think, probably the biggest question of all, why is it the Postal Service doing this rather than, say, the FBI? Um, great question. I, I mean, I think as the first one, the despite being so willing to tell me all about their super secret program, the Postal Service would not answer any questions whatsoever about when their work began. My guess is not, I mean, I don't want to say things that I couldn't, you know, frankly, like confirm enough to include in my reporting, but I, I think we don't know. Um, I think there's there's interesting footnotes in the document that say, um, you know, we get the authority, you know, our authority to collect and disseminate this social media information about constitutionally protected activity, which is the protest um, and speech comes from and they cited particular you know, U.S. codes pertaining to the investigative powers of the post office. And one of them says that the attorney general can give additional powers to the postmaster general under certain conditions. And I personally wonder if, if that is what's happened and under which attorney general. So I don't know if this is recent or not. Also, the Department of Justice was extremely um, not helpful in also answering that question about the attorney general expansion of powers thing. And then your, to your second point of why they're doing this, um, I, I think there's a lot of reasons. I mean, what we know about this same law enforcement arm of the post office is they were the ones who arrested Steve Bannon on the boat, the, the Chinese billionaire. And they do have a, a very wide authority to do things. They think, um, or they told me, that they have the authority to investigate anything on the Internet or elsewhere that could potentially be a threat to not just the postal service or delivery of the mail or its employees or its infrastructure, but any potential threat to any of its customers. So if you have, I don't know, a mailing address in the United States, then they are defending you um, by seeking out these threats potentially on the internet and sharing it with the rest of law enforcement. Well, that's a pretty wide berth to protect the security of every anybody who gets mail. Correct. <laughs> Everything and everyone. <laughs> you know, what is, uh, you know, normally when law enforcement agencies launch investigations, there is some predicate, you know, for that investigation. And, and I just wonder. Yeah, they say they don't need that. So, so January 6th happens. I mean, is it even in response to what happened on January 6th or have they just been trolling the, the internet, are they just out there looking for anything that, what was the language that, that was used, provocative or inflammatory? Inflammatory. How do they define inflammatory? I mean, it, it just seems like we really have to understand what the, the parameters of their investigation is and, and under what authorities they are doing this, because uh, I've never really heard anything quite like this. Right. I mean, this is obviously a weird one, but it's also important in that it's not just this isn't just the post office. So the answer to your question is, look, how long have they been doing this? When did this start? Is this particularly about protests? I don't know. They told me and it's in their statement to me that they do, you know, proactive research that they then share with local, state, federal enforcement. So the issue is also that the Department of Homeland Security, for example, has spoken recently about their interest in expanding their social media collection programs. But what they have, you know, they say they bring in civil liberties, you know, their privacy office, all of their lawyers and consultants, you know, they care about all the constitutional implications for this. Um, they, it seems to me that they cannot actually do the work that the post office is doing. 
And when they put together sort of reports that we've sort of gotten a hold of in the past uh, related to social media, they will say U.S. person one, and they will not include the personal details or identifying information of anyone posting anything on social media, but they are distributing through their network to law enforcement across the country, federal, state, local, tribal, all of that, this post office bulletin that we obtained. So DHS said during uh, a recent congressional hearing, oh, we don't, we don't troll social media for threats. So is the post office doing the work DHS literally like can't do on their own letterhead? It's being distributed just the same by DHS. So is this sort of a workaround to use the authority of the post office to do what the other agencies can't do? And that's a real concern. So this was not only a surprise to, I think, most people, you know, kind of in the in the general media establishment and in the civil liberties organizations. It was also, I gather, pretty much a surprise to people on the Hill and in Congress who had no idea that there was this agency out there trolling social media. And what what are you hearing from uh, people in Congress, whether or not they're going to conduct oversight or try to, you know, kind of at least answer some of these questions that we've, you know, that you've been raising, that we've been raising? Right. Um, well, I think I think we all know that Congress does not like hearing about things from the press. So I think particularly because the post office has been in crisis mode and there's been all of these hearings and all of this focus and uh, the postmaster general, which who, of course, comes in under Trump, has been asking for all this money saying, you know, we are completely insolvent. We cannot deliver the mail. And I think that this program that no one knew about um is sort of uniting, I don't want to go too far in this direction, but when we have lawyers from, you know, the ACLU and far to the right advocates saying, you know, what the hell is this post office? And we have Ted Cruz's office, you know, Ted Cruz tweeting, oh, I, uh, you know, what is this? I guess he said, uh, you know, well, now we know that literally every agency is doing surveillance. Of course, because the subject of this post office bulletin is, you know, largely focused on sort of parlor users and people associated with more of the right side of the aisle. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Jonna, because most of the reaction I've seen, you know, has been from Republicans. You know, as you mentioned uh, Ted Cruz. I think didn't Jim Jordan that tweet something yeah, as well? Yeah. And then I saw that uh, Tom Tom Massey, the congressman from Kentucky, you would think that this might be um, one of those rare uh, bipartisan issues that Republicans and Democrats could agree on. But have you seen uh, any reaction from Democrats who are tr- traditionally, you know, big advocates for for civil liberties and privacy? I mean, I, w- I will say that I had reached out to a few people who on the Dem side who sort of are both historically interested in sort of surveillance and privacy and who also are involved in oversight of the post office. And they were very hesitant to speak on the record also because they didn't know anything about this and were not thrilled to learn about this from me. Um, but I have heard from some congressional offices to, you know, on the, on the Democrat side privately. Um, I have not seen them be very public. I do hope this is not one of those things where they say, oh, well, Ted Cruz said it first on Twitter, so now we don't want to say the same thing, even though that's what we saw before. I don't know. I mean, I think I think Ted Cruz getting out there very early may have, have taken some yeah. effort out. I, I don't know that it's. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly there's there's some of that. Um, no Democrats want to follow in the footsteps of Ted Cruz these days. <laughs> on the other hand, I think the politics of this is pretty clear. House Republicans jumped on it. And by the way, they wrote a letter, you know, demanding explanations from the Postal Service after your story. But they're doing so because, as you point out, the primary focus of this are the folks on the extreme right and Trump supporters who were uh, behind the January 6th insurrection. And, you know, it flows into larger issues that have been raised. The Washington Post did an excellent story about uh, a couple of weeks ago about all the techniques the FBI is using to go after the insurrectionists that raise civil liberties concerns as well, including license plate readers that capture suspects' cars on the way to Washington, cell tower location records that chronicle movements of people through uh, facial recognition technology, which is fraught with all sorts of 
problems. And it doesn't even work, really. Right. The specter of the government using these very aggressive surveillance techniques. Uh, if this had come out, you know, nine or 10 years ago in the aftermath of Snowden, there would have been an uproar from Democrats uh, demanding right. at least explanations of this. But right now, when the primary focus of law enforcement is people on the right, you hear Republicans who would have been silent or were mostly silent, not entirely, but mostly silent in the aftermath of Snowden, jumping all over this Postal Service program. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, all of those are correct points. I think that I think that both sides need to have a little bit of a longer memory that the policies that happen now will be applied to, you know, to target their own party and their own voter base. Um, right. This is not like a like. And John, the, the memo you uncovered was 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 about one date and one particular kind of uh, area of inquiry by this now no no longer covert um, <laughs> operation, but we don't know how long they've been going on and we don't know what the scope of their inquiry is. You might just as easily end up getting a copy of a similar report that was prepared last summer about Black Lives Matter activists, right? I mean, we, we genuinely don't, we don't know. I, I believe that that would exist. I mean, to be honest, I mean, my sense is that I lived in D.C., right sort of behind the postmaster general, and there were all these protests um, against him for quite a while. I guess it was last year. And I wonder if that was where they sort of got their authority to do this, because sort of collecting particularly social media um, posts about constitutionally protected activities. I mean, this is First Amendment stuff that plays into the administration's, you know, larger issues of like, how do we face domestic extremism here when, you know, it, within the confines of what is a lot harder to do because of the First Amendment. So I think that, I think that one, you're right that this has probably been going on for a while, I would think. And I think that there probably is or could be such a document that focuses on Black Lives Matter. I mean, John, I want to. Yeah. Are you are you suggesting that? Um, I just want to make sure I'm understanding this. That uh, uh, during the protests, you know, spawned by the George Floyd killing last summer, uh, that there were protests, people specifically protesting uh, the Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, who had become a very controversial figure, and th that the impetus here may have been responding to those protests against him, and so then. They sought additional powers uh, to deal with that. Is uh, did I hear you suggesting that? I'm saying that I think that when people look at this bulletin that we got, that shows, you know, in itself, it says we're in charge of scouring the internet for protest information. And if you look at the authorities specifically cited in the bulletin in the footnote, the only possible, I mean, the only thing that sort of has been suggested to me, and that I remember just based on, you know, being woken up um, every morning by the protests outside of the Postmaster General's house. I think that there was an intersection. I think it's not fair to say necessarily that the post office has no business looking at things that could potentially threaten their mail delivery system. I think that there may have been an intersection in protests and the post office um, that I personally witnessed because I lived in the middle of it. Um, I don't know if that led to greater authority or if that kicked off anything else or if that in itself would be within the normal confines of what the post office does because it would be considered a, a potential threat to, you know, the head of its entire agency. I, mean, I don't have anything that would be publishable in terms of you yeah. know, sort of confirming about about anything like that. But I will say that there was a genuine you know, intersection between a potential threat to the postmaster general from a protest. Maybe not as severe as they would say. And how public is the post office's uh, kind of investigative guidelines? Because, you know, law enforcement agents like the FBI, there are very specific, uh, uh, detailed guidelines. Like domestic about... operations guidelines. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And so does the postal inspector, do, do they have uh, the equivalent of that? And are those are those public? Is it transparent? Do you know? It is public. Um, I mean, just based on and I. I'm not a lawyer, so I obviously, you know, consulted experts who would help me do this research, just to be clear. But the footnotes at the bottom of the, the bulletin that, uh, you know, this is where we get our authority to do this, 
referenced several like U.S. Code Part B, this number, whatever. And that led to what is at least a part or um, there's something public about the Postal um, Inspection Service sort of investigative powers. And the only item in the various numbered codes that they sort of referenced was this, you know, expansion of powers that can be granted by the attorney general. Um, so there is some public, but we know that this program was not. So I don't, I don't know. There was nothing that anyone I spoke to at the Brennan Center, the person, Jeff Stone from um, University of Chicago Law School, who was uh, appointed by or uh, President Obama put in charge of doing the review of bulk data collection by the NSA after the Snowden revelations. I mean, he, they were all just, I speak to these people fairly frequently and they are the most unflappable sort of experts. And they're, you know, I sent them this bulletin. They're like, what the hell is this? Like, oh my God. (laughs) There's a lot more questions. I mean, for sure. Uh Yeah, Jana, listening to you, it occurs to me that there are FOIA requests that uh, are definitely uh, in order here, both to the Postal Service, but also to the Justice Department to find out which attorney general authorized this uh, program and what the justification was. So um, we should definitely get those FOIAs out as you continue your reporting on this um, really uh, uh, fascinating uh somewhat creepy story. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, John. Uh, Great scoop. Uh, Keep up the good work. Thank you, guys. 